Hello there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today, we are speaking with Rosemary Coates, founder and executive director of the Reshoring Institute, a nonprofit focused on expanding U.S. manufacturing supply chains. She is also president of Blue Silk Consulting, a supply chain management consulting firm. She's been a management consultant for 25 years, helping over 80 global supply chain clients, and is an Amazon.com best-selling author with five supply chain books, including the Reshoring Guidebook and the Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes. She also works as an expert witness on legal cases involving global supply chains. Rosemary serves on the Board of Directors at the University of San Diego Supply Chain Management Institute and teaches global supply chain strategy at UC Berkeley. She earned an MBA from the University of San Diego and a bachelor's degree in business logistics from Arizona State University. Rosemary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. What was the driving force behind you establishing the Reshoring Institute? For about 15 years, I worked um, as a management consulting, helping companies offshore to China find uh, sources in China uh, and, and very oftentimes uh, move production to China. And then in 2012, uh, the uh, presidential election, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were China bashing like crazy. You know, it was all China's fault. and. Um, you know, they were, they were to be blamed for everything uh, regarding our economic woes at the time. And so, uh, so I sort of, I'm like, well, I can't tell anybody what I do for a living now. <laughs> you know, it was pretty awful because there was a lot of, you know, a lot of um, uh, um, talk and, and uh, discouragement regarding China. Um, so um, I gathered my team together and said, um, let's develop a methodology and a plan and an approach for uh, talking to our clients about evaluating the possibility of bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. And so we did that. We put together a methodology. And then um, I'm on the board of directors at the University of San Diego, as you mentioned. And so I asked the director there if he would house um, a, a nonprofit institute uh, that supported reshoring and he agreed. So the reshoring institute was born um, and we incubated at the University of San Diego for a couple of years, took a lot of interns there. And then in um, and then a couple years ago we went independent. So now we are um, uh, affiliated with six or seven universities across the U.S. where we take graduate interns and we teach them about manufacturing and, and they help us with our research and so forth. So that was kind of the origins of it. And now we do, uh, you know, a lot of reshoring assistance. Uh, the 2018 strategy for American leadership and advanced manufacturing report uh, outlined three goals for leadership and advanced manufacturing. First, develop and transition new manufacturing technologies. Second, educate, train, and connect the manufacturing workforce. And third, expand the capabilities of the domestic manufacturing supply chain. How does the Reshoring Institute address, in particular, the second and third goals? Um, yeah, so the second goal is about uh, manufacturing education. You know, over the past um, 25 years or so, as people, as companies were moving to China and 
um, you know, looking, chasing low cost operating environments. Um, the education surrounding manufacturing and operations was really declining. Um, and a lot of graduate students instead were focusing on marketing, on e-commerce, on finance, uh, and uh, operations was kind of ignored. So think about an MBA student who's going to come out of grad school with no background in operations, and yet this person is going to be an eventual leader of a manufacturing company. So we could see there was a dearth of education there and decided that we were going to take that on. And so we did that by, um, uh, by taking interns from multiple universities, teaching them about manufacturing, <clears throat> and then giving them assignments, writing assignments regarding manufacturing so that we have a lot of case studies and white papers and infographics and um, different pieces of research that these students have produced. Um, and it's all available on our website and downloadable. So in, in that regard, we, you know, we took a handful of students and started teaching them, but I think we raised the awareness at these universities as well about the need for teaching operations management or supply chain management. And um, we started seeing a lot of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of new classes coming online and um, we did guest lecturing and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, different courses and, you know, really raised the awareness regarding the need for manufacturing education. Um, I would also say that that goes uh, through all levels in manufacturing. So it's not just a senior executive level, which would be, you know, an MBA student or a master's in engineering. Uh, but all the way down to skills learned at a community college, um, computer skills that are now required in most manufacturing environments, uh, you know, a, it's a different skill set. So we like to say, you know, <clears throat> um, what we're developing are, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm frog in my throat. Um, so what we like to say is that we're um, developing new collar jobs. So, you know, in the past, like, my grandfather um, worked at Hazie Taylor in Warren, Ohio, um, and he uh, was a metal worker. And I can remember him coming home in the 1960s, and he had he was dirty and smelly, and he had grease under his fingernails, and it was gross, you know. Manufacturing right. does not look like that anymore. <clears throat> and, you know, in today's environment, um, manufacturing involves the use of computers. Um, people are more likely to run robots uh, than they are to do the work themselves. Um, they have to you know, move production along and they use computer to move work in process or test quality. Um, you know, there's a lot of technology involved, more uh, mathematics involved. There's a lot of geometry in, in uh, manufacturing. So the skills are different. And what we call that is a new color kind of job. So the training, you know, so it's not only, yeah, it's not only university training, but all the way down to skills training for every part of a manufacturing environment that's very important these days. And then for the, um, the expanding the capabilities of the domestic manufacturing supply chain, uh, you've mentioned that even with a call by the U.S. government, a reshoring move could take two to three years, even with swift action. How difficult is it to move the parts and finished products manufacturing from China back to the US? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. And yes, that's what we normally tell our clients is that 
you know, you can't just snap your fingers and expect it to happen. You, you know, this is a process um, that manufacturers are going to know this, but, you know, it's a process that's going to take 12 to 18 months um, to establish a manufacturing site in the U.S. or to expand manufacturing here. You have to, you know, not only uh, the physical setup and uh, the engineering of the processes, um, oftentimes re-engineering of, of um of the uh, actual product itself to fit um, a U.S. manufacturing environment, um, but also training the skilled workers. You know, we uh, we have a great example of failure. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Otis Elevator, but there was uh, quite a bit of stuff written about them a couple of years ago where uh, they built a, a new plant in Florence, South Carolina, and we're bringing manufacturing back from Mexico. <clears throat> and they um, sort of, built the plant and then threw the doors open and expected workers to come. But unfortunately, even though the unemployment rate was fairly high, they didn't have the right kind of workers. So they didn't have skilled workers for uh, what they needed. And as a result, they stumbled along for a year, lost $60 million. They, you know, it, it just was a mess because they didn't, um, think through, you know, how it was actually going to work. So there are, you know, all kinds of issues regarding that. And then the, the one other thing is just because you decide to manufacture here, your supply chain is gone too. So, you know, most companies, when they moved to China, the supply chains moved with them or they started sourcing, you know, and developing suppliers in China. So if you decide you're going to come back, you have to understand you have to reestablish your supply chain here as well. And that, that takes a lot of time and, and effort as well. The current pandemic has made those gaps in the manufacturing supply chain, especially the medical supply chain, uh, all too obvious. You know, how, I mean, you've already talked about this, but you know, how do we get in this mess? I mean, what do we do to right side that imbalance? Well, you know, we, we hope and we work for trying to get more manufacturing established in the U.S. But the bottom line is it's an economic decision. So, um, you know, if the numbers don't work, uh, if you, um, you know, you have two, your, your production process includes too much labor um, and you can't compete with low cost labor around the world, it's just we can't make it work. So, you have to think through um, uh, automating and re-engineering processes, developing local products to be sold in the local market so you can take out some of the logistics costs. Um, you have to think through uh, developing skilled workers that where it pays a living wage. Um, so, it's, you know, it's not exactly straightforward and is uh, it takes a lot of work and effort. It's not it, it's not easy. Uh, let's talk about a specific example. Uh, you were featured in the CNN report on uh, counterfeit N95 masks cropping up as healthcare workers try to arm themselves against the virus. What can be done in the short and long term to address this particular issue? Yeah, global counterfeits are a huge issue. So I also do expert witness work and um, on, on global supply chain matters. And over the past couple of years, I've done, I've worked on five or six global counterfeit um, uh, cases and issues. Um, and in the process of that, I've done an enormous amount of research on, on global counterfeiting. And wow, it's a huge problem. And there are some statistics that say one in 20 products 
every 20 products that we buy uh, from like Amazon or eBay or somewhere like that are counterfeits. Um, and the counterfeiters have gotten so good that um, products may be totally indistinguishable. And the only way you can determine whether they're counterfeit or not is to have, you know, an engineering process to look at every part and so forth. So, you know, counterfeits are just, just out of control, just crazy. Um, and, you know, so it really affects the brands. Um, if you have a big brand like Apple or you know, Samsung or, you know, John Deere, whatever, um, uh, you know, if you have counterfeit parts in your supply chain or whatever, it's going to affect your brand image and also your, um, your uh, revenue. If you've got counterfeiters out there, you're not getting that revenue if people think that they're buying your branded product. So that's another big issue. You know, when I, um, I, I used to fly a lot <laughs> before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I, yeah, I was on the road a lot. And every time I get on an airplane, I, you know, buckle in and I think, oh God, I hope there aren't counterfeits on this airplane. You know, because counterfeit parts in electronics, um, in, um, in aircraft parts, in um, auto can make the operation of your vehicle or your airplane, uh, uh, you know, suspect, right? And uh, so it's it's not only puts lives in danger, but it it addresses you know uh, revenue streams and it's just huge. So when we're talking about um, counterfeits in in uh, the response to COVID nineteen, um, just you know just think what that would be if you had uh, N ninety five masks that were counterfeit and didn't operate the way you expected. So we are indeed putting lives in danger. Um, you know, in this case, it's a great need. And so, you know, companies, buyers aren't perhaps as diligent as um, they should be because there's such a great need just to get anything. Um, and so we, we, we see, um, you know, counterfeit pro products coming in. We've caught a few of them already. But, you know, the, the issue, I think, is... Um, very relevant for any time because whenever there's a huge need or huge demand like this, you're going to see the counterfeiters enter the marketplace um, because they see it as an opportunity as well. It's a big opportunity to make a lot of money. So, uh, you know, you, it's, it's, it behooves companies that are purchasing always to follow that supply chain and validate it. And there's lots of ways they can do that as well. I, I mean, from what I read, that can be a, a laborious process. A laborious, time-consuming, expensive. Um, you know, you have to go to China and look at the factories. I'm, I'm really, you know, just assuming that they're going to produce um, the articles the same way as they did the samples for you. This is this kind, you know, over the years I did so much work in China, and I, you know, uh, companies would get these fabulous samples um, that were just superb quality, um, everything they would have expected and the price was low. And so, you know, people were just clamoring to get this stuff. Um, and then as soon as production started, um, there's um, this thing called quality fade in China where as soon as uh, the Chinese manufacturer gets uh, a contract, they start cutting corners um, in order to make additional profit or some profit. 
So they may have quoted you at what we call the China price at a low cost, but then when they start producing, they have to increase their profit margins just like any company would. And so they start cutting corners and, and you find that the quality fades over time. And pretty soon those high quality samples that you were in love with become kind of ho-hum or um, inappropriate. So that happens over time too. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of issues and um, uh, in, in with respect to quality and how to control it and how to control your supply chain worldwide. You need to be there and validate. Uh, let's, let's switch to, um, to the, uh, go back to the topic of, uh, of education. And since the Reshoring Institute is a collaboration with several American universities, that are conducting research on moving production back to the U.S. and some case studies involving that. Um, what is the the role that academic institutions can play in support in supporting the manufacturing supply chain and spurring innovation? I think um, you know using the current information is very important. So you know universities. Um, and professors are used to teaching concepts and, and issues and so forth. But in today's environment, they also have to be very up to date um, in terms of the issues that are occurring right now. Counterfeiting is a very good example. So uh, an operations class or a supply chain class should include information regarding, um, regarding counterfeiting worldwide. Um, you know, they should include information regarding um, reshoring and the ability to uh, develop a total cost of ownership model uh, for each individual um, company. So this is a, another area where there's a zillion TCO models out there that you can start with, but the, the truth is there's no generic model that works for everyone. So uh, each company has to uh, develop its own total cost of ownership to make comparisons. Um, and then, you know, teaching students that that's not the only measure. So um, you might be teaching a TCO model, um, but, you know, that's only the starting point for making an executive decision. You also have to teach the concepts and how to deal with all those concepts uh, to make an informed decision that's really strategic and appropriate for today's environment. And that plugs into what you've already mentioned, your, um, uh, the, the program that you have to teach graduate students about manufacturing. Is there anything else you'd like to, uh, to mention in that in terms of, you know, the, uh, you know, being able to uh, entice more, more qualified, high-skilled young people into uh, a manufacturing workforce? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um... I have two two kids and five grandkids. But I have two kids. But when they were when they were going to college, you know, even though I was in manufacturing my whole career, it never occurred to me to encourage them to take a manufacturing route. You know, so um, you know, my son uh, studied business, but didn't you know he, he went in a different direction, marketing direction, um, and my daughter wasn't interested. So, but, you know, never occurred to me. I think in today's environment, we need to really encourage students to think about the global manufacturing environment and how exciting it is to, to uh, you know, manufacture around the world, address specific markets. I mean, it's really a much higher level strategic thought process than it ever was before. So we can, in fact, I think, turn 
uh, uh, students towards uh, manufacturing or operating a degree or interest or approach to getting a job um, uh, by talking positively about the, the excitement that there is really in global manufacturing. Um, I think that's really important. Um, obviously, STEM skills are very important. Um, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of mathematics in manufacturing, a lot of geometry, even for um, just assembly workers, they have to understand um, the relationships in space and, uh, and so forth and that, you know, those kind of concepts. So in teaching younger children, STEM skills is also the basic and very, very important as we go forward. So those are the kind of things we, we as parents and grandparents and individuals can indeed encourage that kind of thing. Um, I have a grandson who's a baseball player and, you know, one day I put my arm around him and I said, you know, this is great. And he's like, I want to be a professional baseball player. <laughs> and um, I said, you know, that's, that's good. But, you know, in case that doesn't happen, think about going to college and learning engineering skills and then maybe going to work at Louisville Slugger, you know, go make baseball bats, right? So those those kind of connections between uh, a child or student's interest uh, and how that plays out in the manufacturing environment is also very important to teach those ideas. Yeah, you don't have to tell me that one twice. So I'm, <laughs> I'm a little biased though. Um, so what's next for the Reshoring Institute? Well, I, we think that um, once we're through um, the the pandemic and start to recover that there are indeed companies out there that be thinking strategically about their their global plans and hopefully that includes bringing some manufacturing back um so you know we're here to help we um you know do tco modeling we do strategy work um we do a lot of import export work and of course we have deep depth in uh, Chinese manufacturing, so knowing how to extract yourself from China, not always easy. <laughs> That's a whole other topic for another day. But um, so we, we have all those skills and, and can help with, um, with uh, you know, any kind of questions that people have. Also, we do a lot of labeling requirements. So, <clears throat> you know, the Federal Trade, Trade Commission uh, controls made in the USA labeling and the requirements around that so we do some work there so we can help with um, consulting projects or the research that we post online fantastic thank you so much rosemary for coming on the show i appreciate You're the welcome. time